We're going to open to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 this morning. And I think we'll begin just by starting with the first verse right off. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now we've been studying together through the book of Matthew, and we've seen this verbal formula before, three other times. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, and then usually followed by a movement in His geography and also a progression in, his, um, in, the, in the life of his ministry. And this is the fourth, this formula marks the fourth or the closing of the fourth of those five sections or those five sort of books of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's gospel. This little phrase, when he had finished these things, then he went down into Galilee, this marks both, the, both an ending and a beginning. It marks an ending of everything that he's been teaching us in chapter 18, and then it also marks the beginning. It's a transfer to a new locality. Now, remember, Jesus has has finished his ministry in Galilee and up in the north. He's gone as far north as Caesarea Philippi. Now he's begun to come back down. He's made spent some time in Galilee, but now John's, uh, Matthew says he's making his way all the way down to Jerusalem, and because that's where He's going to spend his his last days. This is going to be the climax of his life as he came to lay down his life for his sheep that they may be brought to God. This is where he will give his final and dramatic teaching before he dies. We're starting this final, this fifth and final sort of section of the teachings of Jesus that will then only conclude with the passion narrative, that is, the narrative about Jesus' last week and His sufferings and His death. Much like the five books of Moses unfold as the Israelites progress on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land and conclude with the death of Moses, of course the difference is, with Israel, God said, I will raise up a prophet like Moses who will lead you into the land of rest. And of course that was whom? That was, Well, yeah, ultimately it was Jesus. That was Joshua in terms of the Old Testament, right? Joshua led the people into the promised land. But when Christ dies... It will be he himself who is literally raised up from the dead who will be the new Joshua to lead his people into their eternal rest, to give them eternal rest by the death that he has, uh, he has offered to God on their behalf. So this is a wonderful um, fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. He's now headed toward Jerusalem, and verse 2 says that large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. You can only imagine the, uh, 
the people, the joy of the people who saw their loved ones um, given renewed health, be able to walk where they couldn't walk before, and to see where they have been blind all their lives. And you can imagine the huge crowd that's beginning to gather around him as he makes his way down toward Jerusalem. And of course, as he does gain such a following, he's also bound to draw the attention of the Jewish um, religious authorities, these self-appointed religious authorities, the Pharisees. And they come to Jesus... And he's, he's obviously, he's had some interactions with them already, Matthew's recorded, and they're going to reach their, their peak um, in chapter 21, uh, sorry, chapter 23, with the seven woes that he pronounces against the Pharisees. But here already, you can see their antagonism to the Lord Jesus. They've rejected his claims, and they've come not to find out truth, but to argue, um, to try to prove what they already believe. Isn't it true that so many people do that? They want to sit down and argue with you about spiritual things, but not because their hearts are open to truth, because they, they just want to prove what they already believe. And these, these men, these Pharisees, come to Jesus, already hardened in their hearts against Him, to entrap him or to ensnare him in some way. You can see verse 3, the Pharisees came to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're deliberately broaching this controversial issue, perhaps hoping to portray him as somebody who is soft on the law, somebody who's in contradiction to the law that God gave to Israel. So they're trying to trap him by this. And so we read Jesus' response beginning in verse number four. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. One flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, then they said to him, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus answered, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples, listening to him, talking to the Pharisees, they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is, it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. 
and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Marriage, trouble, is no more new today than it was in Jesus' day. It's as old as the fall. Husbands and wives, trouble between people who live so closely together, sinners, fallen people, and divorce. Divorce was just as accessible, at least if you were a man, just as accessible today uh, for them in that day as it is today. Um, Now, we are going to look at this passage and trust that the Lord Jesus will teach us some things. Um, Sometimes the Lord leads us to a passage that is not maybe primarily to encourage our hearts so much as to instruct our minds that we may think God's thoughts after Him. And so let us submit our thinking to what our Lord has to say. He is going to, from this springboard of this attempt to ensnare Him, He's actually going to teach us about two um, aspects of social life. First, about marriage and divorce, and secondly, about a life of singleness. So first off, he teaches them about marriage and divorce. And that teaching, of course, is prompted by this test, which is put to him in these words. Is it lawful to put away one's wife, to divorce one's wife for any cause? And they don't mean by that, is there any possible reason why divorce may be permissible? That's not the question they're asking. The lawfulness of divorce is assumed by the the people who are asking. What they want to know is, what's the breadth of the law here? On on what accounts can someone be divorced? Is divorce, here's the question, is divorce lawful for for any and every reason? Is Is it that broad? That's the question being put to Jesus. And the background behind this is, the rabbinical interpretation and the ongoing discussion among the rabbis about the meaning of one particular Old Testament passage, and that is Deuteronomy chapter 24. In fact, you may want to hold your finger here, and let's just go back and and read it just so we have the background. Deuteronomy 24 and verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends it out of her house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring the sin on the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, there's, uh, there's, some, there's some things being um, 
being laid out as, as standards and rules for the people of God. But, but the question that the Pharisees had was not dealing quite so much with this exact situation where there was a divorce and then a remarriage. and then but They're just asking, they're, they're really focusing in, and the rabbis were focused in on just one word or a couple of words here in our translation, a couple of words that had to do with... Um, the, the grounds for the divorce. And the argument is over what those words mean. Do you have any idea in the text, uh, in our Bibles, what those, what those words might be? Somebody want to throw it out there? It's, it's verse 1, some indecency. What is that? If, there's some, if he sees some indecency with her, he may give her a bill of divorce. He literally has to, to, to hand deliver it, and she has to have it. Um, and then he... May divorce her. So, what is the some indecency that is um, under consideration here? Because that seems to be the reason that a man could divorce his wife. And some rabbis um, took a, took a narrow interpretation. You may have heard this before. Some there were some some who took a narrow interpretation of what this means. That some indecency refers to essentially immorality on her part. So if she was not a virgin when she was married, and the man found that out, or if while they were married she, um, she was unfaithful to him, committed adultery, or even if she um, dressed or behaved in a way that the husband felt was immodest, those could be grounds for, for divorce. That was the narrow interpretation. The broader um, interpretation was that some indecency um, is a pretty loose category, and you can fit almost anything that you can think of into that category. Some indecency. She indecently burned my dinner. So, out with you, woman. And literally, there were arguments that, that those kinds of things could be legitimate grounds for divorce, according to the Mosaic Law. They would also point to the fact that in verse 3, the second husband, he just is said to hate her or be displeased with her, and so divorce her. And in Jesus' day, it seems that this, um, this more liberal position was, was the majority position that most of the Jews um, adopted that interpretation. And so the question comes to Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any and every cause? Is it as broad as, um, as it is purported to be? Now, that, of course, is, is, is a, maybe a helpful parallel, as tragic as it, as, it, as it was in those days. It's a helpful parable parallel because um, accessibility to divorce in our culture is not a whole lot different, probably, at least in terms of what it was for men. It's not a whole lot different today than it was then. Divorce, as you know, is rampant in our culture. No-fault divorce, that is, divorce that doesn't need to prove that there was guilt on the other party's part. 
no-fault divorce is the law as of 2010 in all 50 states and the um, District of Columbia. And we've all heard the stat, half or so of all marriages will end in divorce. 40 to 50 percent. If divorce is trending down as it does seem to be, it's only because more couples are choosing to live in perpetual fornication rather than to enter into covenant. Um, so this is the world we live in, too. It's the one Jesus was dealing with. And Christians, Christians uh, rationalize um, their approach to divorce. Christians who might otherwise claim to be submitted to the Bible will say, well, does God really want me to be unhappy the rest of my life? Does he really, does God who loves me really want me to be miserable? They will say, you know what, I don't, I just don't believe that it was God's will for me to marry the person I'm married to. So I think he's leading me away from me. They will say, you know, I just cannot live with them anymore. We have tried to work it out, but it's just unworkable. And they slip from, we, we, and this is the, the Christian culture I'm talking about. We tend to slip from a, a robust and unashamed submission to the Word of God to a sort of sub-Christian pragmatism that is more like the world than it is like the church. So what does our Lord say? Well, interestingly, so let's go back to, go back to Matthew here, Matthew 19. When the Lord answers their question, He, he doesn't start where they expect him to start. He doesn't start with Deuteronomy 24. Where does he go? What book? Genesis. He goes to Genesis. And in verse 4, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, now here is a quotation from Genesis 224. You ought to put that there if you don't have it. Probably have it in a reference note on your Bible. He, God said, Jesus says, God said, Genesis 224, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, before I get into it too far, I, I, I can't pass this up without say, noting that Jesus quotes the writings of Moses, and it's not God talking in the text in Genesis 2.24. It's Moses giving a, um, a, a narrative comment, a comment on the narrative that's taking place because of what God did. Therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Two comments on this. First of all, Moses saw what God had done in history as paradigmatic, as a, as a pattern for what 
marriage should always be. So here's one man and one woman. But secondly, I should point out that Jesus quotes it and attributes the quotation to whom? The Creator, God. So Jesus has a very high view of the writings of Moses. He views that as the very Word of God. And so should we. You should go back and read Genesis and receive it as the very Word of God. It's a, written by a human author, but when you read Matthew, or when you read Moses, excuse me, or David, or Matthew, or Paul, you may have confidence in what was written, and we must submit to what was written. Not say to ourselves, "Well, Paul lived in a different culture than we do, and what was right for him in his day." or wrong for him in his day, is not wrong for us in our day. We just don't, we don't, he didn't understand what we understand today. This is not Jesus' view of the Scripture. And neither should it be ours. We should not hide behind an attempt to, we should not hide behind a, a, a belief or a, a, somebody who purports that, that this is um, um, a culturally grounded uh, word. This is the very word of God. And we can trust it. So, having said that, Jesus' conclusion then is this. Verse 6. So they, that is the husband and the wife, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And now the application is what God has joined together Let not man separate. Jesus goes to Genesis, and in Genesis we have God's original creation. Jesus affirms that. And that creation forms a paradigm, a pattern for all subsequent marriages. As I said, one man, one woman, one body, or one flesh through sexual union. God in the beginning made no other sexual partners for the people that he made. One man, one woman, to be one. Two, and yet one. And further, it is God who joined the man and woman together. God made the man, God made the woman from the man, as it were, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, And then God brought that flesh back together again as one. And God did it, and Jesus says, no man should ever dare try to separate what God joins. Which is about as strong a statement on the permanence of marriage as you could make God put you together. No man should dare stand up to God. So Jesus quotes Genesis as if that's enough. Case closed, period at the end of the sentence, that should be sufficient. But that stirs up, of course, another question. 
um, from the Pharisees. And, 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 and because on the face of it, there seems to be a tension between what Jesus is showing in Genesis 1 and 2 and what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Jesus is almost like, no, no, no divorce. And then Moses is talking about divorce. So their question is, okay, what about this tension? Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command us, command one, to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus answers this, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I hope you caught two important clarifications that Jesus is making in response to the question that they asked from Deuteronomy 24. One, he says it wasn't a command, but a what? Uh, he, he permitted it. They said, Moses commanded us. Jesus says, Moses allowed you. Okay. Now, the second thing is that this allowance was made because of hardness of heart. That is because of sin, because of sin in the world. But Jesus says, but from the beginning, it was not so. And of course, his reference is back to Genesis 1 and 2, which is before hardness of heart came into the world, before there was sin. Those who start their discussion about marriage and its permanence and divorce, those who want to start in Deuteronomy 24 will have as their basic presupposition that divorce is to be expected. The only question now is, how will it be regulated? But those who start from Genesis... Genesis 1 and 2 will recognize that God's intention for you in your marriage is that you be in an unbroken bond. Divorce, Jesus says, is only an allowance because of sin. And the particular sin that makes divorce a sad reality is what Jesus identifies in his concluding statement, which is verse 9. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for, here's that hardness of heart, here's that sin, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, of course, divorce in Jesus' day, um, as, as now, assumes the probability of remarriage. I mean, that's sort of the point, right? That's generally speaking the point anyway. Someone wants to be out of their marriage bond so that they can be with someone else. But that remarriage, Jesus says, is adultery. Why? Because in God's eyes... The first marriage is not dissolved. So you are now with someone while still yet bound to someone else. This passage, of course, tells us that the person who divorces and remarries commits 
What? What does it say? Commits adultery. Okay. Now, back when we were in chapter 5, we saw the Bible fill this out a little bit more. Back in chapter 5, he said that they also tempt their spouse to commit adultery through their own remarriage. A man, as Jesus said in chapter 5, a man who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. And further, they tempt others to sin by marrying that divorcee. That, that is, a divorce, divorced person, not on the grounds that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus says that back in chapter 5, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, when divorce comes into the picture, it just brings a whole lot of mess, right? And listen, I, I know that I, I speak to, to many who have, have walked through that. You've been there. And, uh, and you've known brokenness. And you were a part of the brokenness. And, and anyone who's unwilling to conf- confess to their own sinful um, contributions to all the brokenness of their lives doesn't know, doesn't know grace. But the Lord in His mercy has given His Son to cover our sin. Amen? For those who are in Christ. What Jesus is saying is this, ironically, the only thing in the universe hideous enough to lawfully break the bonds of the sacred institution of marriage is adultery itself, sexual immorality. And and here's that one flesh principle at work, sexual union with another person, not your spouse creates a new sort of one flesh union, although a perverted one, that effectively dissolves the first one and separates what God Himself put together. And only in the case of such hardness of heart is divorce permitted, though not commanded for God's people. So that it seems what Jesus is saying is that there there are some people, some brothers and sisters, who have experienced such a painful um, undermining of their marriage by their spouse who has left them to go be with somebody else, who has abandoned them to live with another man or woman, who has gone off and committed adultery, and has, in effect, dissolved the marriage. Not not the person sinned against, but the other. They've destroyed it. And in the mercy of God, it may be repaired like uh, like the destructive effects of all of our sins uh, may be overcome by the mercies of God. But but in some cases... um, there is nothing to be done and that that other person enters into a marriage. This person, this uh, one sinned against, is no longer bound. 
they are, in a sense, released from a marriage that their spouse has destroyed. Now, this teaching was no less radical in Jesus' day than it is today. And so the disciples are like, (laughs) maybe tongue-in-cheek, Lord, if that's the way it is, then it's probably better we just don't even get married. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's better to be unmarried than to be saddled in a marriage from which you could never possibly escape. That was their idea. I just can't help but reading it that way. I don't, I don't know, but it just seems like, I mean, Lord, what are you saying, right? But however facetious the disciple's statement was intended to be, Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach something very serious about singleness or celibacy. And I'm going to use both of those terms because those are, you have to say it today, those are meant to go together. Singleness, in the understanding of a biblical worldview, singleness means celibacy. So he's going to talk to them about singleness, pure celibacy. And he says to them in verse 11, now we're shifting to this second topic here. He says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. This calling to singleness, to celibacy, is, as Jesus says, it is a, it's, a, it's a divine gift. And some other scriptures help us to, to sort of, um, you know, unpack that a little bit more. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll just read to you. Um, if you want to mark it down for study later, you can do that. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Beginning in verse number 6, Paul says, can you listen? Paul says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another kind. There are different kinds of giftedness. He says to the married, excuse me, to the unmarried or to the widows, those whose spouses have died, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. This is good. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Jesus says, and now Paul's picking up the same language, that this is, this is a gift, this, this, um, this calling to a life of singleness and, and celibacy. This is a gift, um, which terminology um, seems to assume maybe that marriage is the norm, although that is certainly a gift as well, um, but that God has given some people a special ability a special calling, perhaps you might even say a special inclination to stand apart from the norm for most of God's people, which is marriage. And Paul goes on to describe the 
benefit of such a gift. This is not to say that marriage has no benefits, for every gift of God has its own unique blessings. But he wants to highlight the blessings of this calling. He says, again, this is 1 Corinthians 7, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how he might please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The married man has greater demands on his time when he comes home of an evening. The married man has an additional person to consider when making decisions about the Lord and service for the Lord and what he might do for the Lord. This is, this is not wrong. This is, these are good things. But, but what he's getting at is that there is a unique goodness to the unmarried state. The married person has to be concerned about what Paul calls worldly things. Now, we use the term worldly and we immediately think, worldly. Don't think of it in that that sense of he's concerned about evil things. He's concerned about things of this world, things things that he has to think about and work through in order to take care of his family as they make their way through this world, through this sinful age. He's got a lot more of that than he does if he is single. He is concerned about worldly things. May I remind you, and, and, and this is, uh, you know it, but when, you, when the weight of it sinks in, it, it puts it in a little bit of a perspective here. Your marriage is not forever. Much as you, much as we rightly preach the permanence of marriage, and we just can't ever imagine being not like married to that person. Marriage is not eternal. Not Mormons. Marriage is for this life. This is not to downplay the relationship that you'll have with your spouse in eternity. If anything, it it increases the level of brother and sisterliness that we have with with all of God's people in, in a way that we could never even begin to imagine in this life when we get to eternity. The relationship with everybody else is so much sweeter and greater and closer. It's like the best of marriages now, in a sense. But your marriage is not ultimate. Your union with Christ is ultimate. So he tells people who are single, there is an advantage in that. That that statement about our marriage not being ultimate, I think is is important. I want to just park there just for one more second because we, because our culture um, builds up the idea of marriage builds up the idea of romance and fairy tale endings as the ultimate good. It's not uh, uncommon for the climax of the movie to be what? They get married and live happily ever after. And, And of course, there's something Christian about that because marriage is a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. 
So is it a good thing to be single? He says it is a gift from God. So he goes on and says, and this is the very ending I'm going to give you from 1 Corinthians 7. He says, Paul, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. So he's saying the same thing about the woman that he said about the man. She's anxious for the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Then he goes on, he says, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you as if you must feel that you must be um, single if you're going to really be holy, any more than you must feel that you should be married if you're really going to be holy. No, you're going to be holy, you're going to have to draw near to the Lord, whether He calls you to be married or whether He calls you to be single. He says, I don't say this to lay any restraint upon you. This is not an absolute, it's not a command, but rather to promote good order and to secure your, listen to this, your undivided devotion to the Lord. So now back to Jesus in um, Matthew 19, verse 12. This is the way he explains it. He says, For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. These are people physiologically incapable of sexual function. And he says, Then, secondly, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. We all have read about the slaves that would serve in the king's court, um, usually castrated males who would serve among the king's um, court and, and among his harem. There are eunuchs by birth. There are eunuchs made eunuchs by men. And then he says there's a third category in the kingdom of God. He said there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. That is not literally or physically, but they have been committed to a life of um, singleness and celibacy. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. These are not merely people who just are single for whatever reason. There's no necessity, there's no necessary glory in that. Not not a bad thing necessarily either, but, but what he's exalting is singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. It is for those who've been given a gift to receive it. This is an unimagined category in the minds of his hearers. Voluntary celibacy. But these people are such because they believe that is the will of God for them. And because they are committed to a greater purpose, the expansion of the kingdom of God and their unique calling in the furtherance of that great kingdom on earth. And if you want to see some illustration of the glory of that calling, you have to look no further than, of course, your Lord Himself, right? You can look at the Apostle Paul, who was... Also in this state and did, and you'd have to say by any measure of, of reading of the book of Acts, 
an incredible amount of gospel work and travel and hardships for the sake of the gospel. Not carrying along a wife, as he says in one passage, like some of the other apostles. His, his calling is, is, a, is a rough calling. And he is gifted in that. This is a gift. And it is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the furtherance of that kingdom. You know the creation mandate in the Old Testament? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But the new creation mandate says, go out into all the earth and make disciples. The typological kingdom of Israel is expanded through a multiplying of the physical offspring. The eschatological kingdom of Christ is expanded through spiritual birth. And that mission may at times be accomplished much better by single men and women who are dedicated wholly to the service of the kingdom. I remember years ago reading a biography of David Brainerd. Anybody ever read David Brainerd? Okay. It's a little depressing because the man struggled. He had one of those, how would you say it, melancholy personalities, a kind of very introspective guy. But it was also because he had a hard calling. He, this is, the, I think, the 1700s, maybe 1600s, 1700s. He was a missionary to Native Americans in the wild, wild west of New York, <laughs> believe it or not, and, uh, and other places as well, but in the, in the east. And he lived apart from civilization, as it were, very rough life, spent hours and hours hiking through the forest. He also had poor health. A lot of these things contributed to his, um, his melancholy. But he, he had a, a confidence that this was God's calling on his life. He never married. I think he died when he was in his, I think he was about 30, maybe a little shy of 30. Um, he never married. Uh, but God had given him a calling to expand the kingdom into the hardest places at a time when you didn't have any of the luxuries of even modern camping. And some of you would not dare to call that luxurious, but you didn't even have those luxuries. God gave him this calling, this ability. Or I think of someone like Amy Carmichael in India in the 1800s who spent her life as a single woman rescuing orphans, teaching them of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that required such time and attention as only could be given by a woman who did not have a a household to manage of her own. And, And many others joined her, the sisters of the common life, they were called. Serving God among those people as single people. Or if you want to move to the 1900s, my mind went to a a pastor, a writer named John Stott, who 
lived for many years, I think to an older, an old man, as, a, as an unmarried man, uh, given him a calling to pastor, to preach, to teach, to write theologies, to write many commentaries that I find still very helpful today. Not distracted by, by the worldly things, but given over to the kingdom of God. This is not, of course, as I say, God's calling for every one of us, or thank God many of us would be out of the will of God, but it is God's calling for some. I recently read a, uh, a little uh, testimony by a single lady missionary this century. She said, my ministry role requires that I travel throughout Latin America and a few other places for missions work. Each month finds me somewhere else, whether it be on the back of a donkey or on the back of a pickup truck, hours outside of civilization. She said, I love what I do. I feel a, a great sense of satisfaction in it. I trust that this is something for which God has made me. I thrive in it. And I think of this time as being, I think, excuse me, I think of this time as being my advantage, as being redeemed. If I were married and had children, I couldn't do this particular job of mine. I couldn't linger in my Bible study and prayer or drop, uh, or, uh, or drop everything and talk to a hurting friend. Time is my advantage right now. Time is the gift to the single person on the mission field and everywhere, really. But how I spend it, well, that's something for which I will have to give an answer to the Almighty. There is no doubt that the calling to singleness comes with its own great um, trials. Just as no doubt the calling to marriage comes with its own unique trials. And God's people said, no, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> it's not where you say amen. If you're married. But listen, there are, there are trials no matter what calling God puts on your life. Yes, there are unique calling. There are unique trials to being called to a single life. And there are unique responsibilities and, and, and difficulties and challenges in being a married person. And Jesus is Lord over all of it. You know, we live in a world that's content to regulate God to the religious stuff. If God tells you how to worship when you guys get together, it's fine, right? It's okay, you go do your thing. God's good for you, then we're glad for that. Just don't let God meddle in our private lives, right? Don't let God tell us how to live at home. Don't let God legislate in our bedrooms or in our doctor's offices or with our checkbooks. This is not the God of the universe. This is not the God of the Bible. God will be Lord of all or He is not your Lord at all. Maybe, so maybe, um, maybe you've been tempted. Maybe no one in here even knows it, but maybe in your heart of hearts you have been tempted to contemplate divorce as a married person. Been tempted at times to just think, I'm never going to be happy. 
and maybe I should just get out. Or maybe, maybe someone here is tempted, been tempted or being tempted to sexual immorality, adultery, an affair with someone who seems to get you, to understand you, to show you some attention, treat you like you deserve to be treated. And there's been a little part of your heart that's been drawn to that in such a way that's tempting you to cross a line. Jesus is wanting us to remember the seriousness of such a sin. It destroys marriage. Or perhaps there's somebody that, you know, you're beginning to wonder if God is calling you to a life of single-minded devotion for the kingdom of heaven. And what I'm getting at today is that all of us should just say, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll follow. Whatever you say, I'll submit to it. Whatever you say about my life, my personal life, I admit, I confess, my life is not my own. It belongs to you. So you tell me, and I'll do it. That's the spirit of faith in a sovereign Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word and for the providence of putting us all together right now here in just this time and this place to hear this word for us. So please use it in the hearts and the minds of your people, both now and in the day to come when they will need it. We pray it in Jesus' name.